Corner Fringe Ministries presents a 12-part series on the divine nature of God. Please enjoy the study. All right, well, we're in part two of our study of the divine nature of God. Embarking, endeavoring, if you will, to go out through the scriptures to scour them to see, really, is Yeshua deity or is he not? Because that's a significant, um, that's a significant detail we, we need to know. This is salvational. If you remember last week, one of the things I said that was at stake, at the basis of this whole study, is worship. One side says Yeshua is deity. We have another side that says he is not. What's the difference? One side gives homage, worship, glory, adoration to Yeshua as the Father, while the other side does not. There's a lot at stake here. If you remember last week, I actually began this study by doing something very, very unusual, something I've never done, and that is to argue on behalf of a theology that I don't even agree with. But I did that for your benefit. I did that so that you could actually experience what it's like to encounter a Unitarian. You need to know their arguments. You need to understand where they're coming from. And you need to be able to be right on the spot, ready to respond with an answer. We're to be equipped to defend the faith. And if Yeshua is deity, we need to be defending the faith. And we need to be defending his honor and majesty. I want you guys to have the ability, this is going to be quite a long study. I don't know how many weeks it's going to go right now, but it is going to be the longest one I've done. I want you to be able to enter into a legitimate dialogue with people who do not believe Yeshua's deity. And you're going to need to be able, by the time you get through this study, you're going to be able to inject real issues. You're going to be able to utilize scriptures that are going to challenge our Unitarian friends, whether they're Orthodox Jews, Orthodox rabbis, or Unitarian Christians. You're going to be equipped. Now, there is so much ground to cover in regard to this study I didn't even know where to begin. My notes are endless on this. I've been taking notes for years because this is something that I personally struggled with over a decade ago. Because what happened is, is when I came back into the faith, I actually started reading the Bible for myself. And, you know, to say that, uh, 80, 90% of what was coming from the pulpit of where I was at was inaccurate. It didn't line up with Scripture. And then as I'm tooling through Scripture, now I start to discover specific passages I never heard taught before. And because I was not taught, I didn't know how to reconcile them. I literally went into a valley of not understanding whether Yeshua, I should worship Him, or should I only pray to the Father. But praise be to God, I continue. That pushed me further into Scripture, and the further I went, the more proof that I saw that Yeshua is to receive the worship that is only due to God. So, getting back to where do we begin with such a huge topic, with something that's so influential in our faith, and then it dawned on me, why not begin at the beginning? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What a fascinating passage. 
You know, when we look at the divine nature of God, when attempting to understand who he is, his preeminence over all mankind, it begins right here at Genesis 1.1. You know, right here we are given our first glimpse at his divine nature. And scripturally speaking, everything that follows Genesis 1.1 is now put into context. And I can say that because what makes God God? The fact that he made heaven and earth. Everything that's created is inferior to that which created it. To our maker, he is the potter, we are the clay. Amen? Now, if we read this verse in the Hebrew, it reads as the following. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim va'et haretz. And when you read this in the Hebrew, the first verse in the Bible, we're given a little hint, as it were, as to the nature of our God. See, because when you look at this word, Elohim, this, we translate this in the English as God. This word technically is plural. It's a plural noun in the Hebrew. Now, some of you might just say, well, there it is. There's the proof. Yeshua is there at the beginning. Genesis 1-1, case closed, let's do something else. Unfortunately, it's not that easy. It's not that simple because at times, listen to me very carefully, in the Hebrew language, you're going to find that a plural noun is used to reference a single person or a single deity. Let me quote to you Dr. Brown. He's a PhD in Semitic or Near Eastern languages. This is his forte. He knows what he's talking about. Listen to what he says regarding plural nouns in the Hebrew. He says, Hebrew, along with other Semitic languages, sometimes expressed greatness, supremacy, exaltation, majesty, and fullness by the means of a compound plural nouns. Plurality could express prominence, ownership, or divinity, all with reference to a single person or deity. So, in other words, one could argue that Elohim simply is relating to the glory, to the majesty, the, to the greatness of the one true God. Could, could we argue that? Of course we can. We can argue that. It's common in Hebrew to do this. This is not foreign. And then when you take into consideration Scripture, Let's look at Isaiah 45, and there are many like this. Isaiah 45, 18. For thus says the Lord, Yahweh, who created the heavens, who is Elohim, who is God, who in the singular. Listen to this. Who is God, who is Elohim, followed by a singular. So you hear that plural noun followed by the singular. This is how the rabbis get around this. And so it says, who is Elohim? Who? Not these, not they. Who formed the earth and made it? Who has established it? Who did not create it in vain? Who formed it to be inhabited? I am the Lord and there is no other. So here you have a perfect example, that plural noun in the Hebrew, creating that majesty. It's followed by a singular. It's not followed by a plural. Interesting. However, having said that, I think it's worth noting as you continue on in Genesis, a case begins to build on our behalf, on those who want to prove that Yeshua, uh, de- uh, Yeshua is deity. And if we continue in Genesis, we come to verse 26, it says this, 
Then Elohim said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. What a fascinating statement. I think this is very significant for us because here we have the plurals, known as plurals of majesty, starting to come out. You have Elohim, who we just read in verse 1, created the heavens and the earth. Elohim speaking, Viomer, led us. This is fascinating. And lest you think that this is poor translation, the Christians... Scholars are just committing eisegetical errors to prove a Trinitarian position. I want to take you to the Hebrew, and I want to read it to you. It is, Viomer Elohim Naaseh Adam Beitzal Menu Kid Mutenu. Okay? I want to draw your attention to this word. Oh, it moved on me. That's, that's a vowel. That's not going to help you. I don't know what happened but it shifted all over. Ah, here we go. Okay. Right here is the word I want to draw your attention to. This is a bait. This means in, in Hebrew. Zalem, zalem is actually image. Every time you see a nun and a vav at the end, it makes the new sound. That is our. This is not a poor translation. All this to say that what you are reading is literally the translation. In fact, when you go to Jewish Bibles, the Tanakh, it's exactly how they translate it. When you go to David Stern's, uh, the complete Jewish Bible, exactly how he translates it. So this is not poor translation. Now we're confronted with something. Elohim now says, let us, in the plural, make man in the plural, our image. This is so significant. And then as we continue, we start to see this almost like it's a habit in Scripture. Genesis 3.22. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. There's the plural again. That's not a poor translation. That's exactly how it's rendered. Again, Genesis 11.7. Come, let us go down there, and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. This is God speaking. This is Elohim. This is Yahweh speaking. You know, I think when you begin to start taking all this in, especially Genesis 1.26, which clearly states in the Hebrew, let us make man in our image. God is doing something. He's doing something very specific. He is calculated. He is strategic. He knows what he's doing and the way he has organized the Torah. He is revealing to us who he is, the deeper nature of who he is. Now, to be fair, I want to read to you an article posted by a very well-known Orthodox rabbi. His name is Tovia Singer. This guy is very influential amongst Judaism today. He is sharp, he's witty, he's articulate, well-spoken. I listen to his show, he's amazing. He's an amazing rabbi, and he knows Scripture. He has a fervent passion for Torah, he has a fervent passion for his Jewish people. And so I have a profound respect for this rabbi. However, I, I do differ with him on the most significant aspect known to mankind, and that is Yeshua. I confess him as the Mashiach, he does not. Not yet. 
but we pray for that, amen? Now, as a disclaimer, I, I want to say that uh, I'm not going to be covering the entirety of the article. I'm going to be pulling out the majority of it, but don't think that I'm pulling out specific texts or specific paragraphs in this article as though I'm going to gain an advantage to prove a point. No such thing is, is happening here. I'd be happy to provide you with the full article, but for the sake of time, we're just going to get to the heart of it, all right? And this is what, it, because this is actually pertaining to exactly what we're talking about, Genesis 1.26. A writer writes in to the rabbi and asks, Dear Rabbi Singer, a Messianic Jew is working overtime to try to convince me that I need JC. Now, I need to interrupt here. Obviously, that is short for Yeshua HaMashiach, okay, for Jesus. And also praise and glory to this Messianic Jew who is working overtime to try to convince this this individual writing in the question that she needs Yeshua. Praise God for that. Now, the question goes on to say, she recently showed me Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image. Stating that JC was part of creation with God, plural us and our being the proof. Can you explain the plural in this verse to me? I want to have an intelligent answer. I am trying very hard to learn more of my Jewish religion as I was raised in a non-religious home. The only Bible I own is the one she gave me, and it is the King James, period, question mark. Now the rabbi goes on to answer this. The doctrine of the Trinity has no greater foe than the Hebrew Scriptures. It is on the strength of this sacred oracle that the Jew has preserved the concept of one single, unique creator God who alone is worthy of worship. This is what's at stake. I keep reiterating it. What is at stake? It is the worship of Yeshua. This is what's under attack. He goes on to say, missionaries undertake a daunting and unholy task as they scour the Jewish scriptures in search of any text that can be construed as consistent with the doctrine of the Trinity. Because the prophets relayed their divine message on the nature of God with such timeless, transparent clarity, few verses in the Tanakh could be summoned by the church to corroborate, to corroborate their alien teachings on the doctrine of the Trinity. Understandably, though, the defenders of Christendom parade the few verses that they insist support the notion that there is a plurality in the Godhead. goes on to say, one of the most popular verses used by missionaries as a proof text in support of the doctrine of the Trinity is Genesis 1.26. This verse appears frequently in missionary literature despite of the fact that this argument has been answered countless times throughout the centuries and numerous Christian scholars have long abandoned it. Let's examine the creation of man as described in the Torah. He says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and they shall rule over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Tovia is quoting Genesis 1.26 here. Notice his quote is exactly what I read to you out of our Bible has the plurals. He goes on to say, with limited knowledge of the Jewish scriptures, missionaries submit the above verse as evidence that there was a plurality in the Godhead that participated in creation of our first parent. 
What other explanation could adequately account for Torah's use of the plural pronouns, such as us and our in this verse? goes on. This argument, however, is deeply flawed. And accordingly, a great number of Trinitarian theologians have long rejected the notion that Genesis 1.26 implies a plurality of persons in the Godhead. I find that interesting. Rather, Christian scholars overwhelmingly agree that the plural pronoun in this verse is a reference to God's ministering angels who were created previously, and the Almighty spoke majestically in the plural, consulting his heavenly court. Now, Tovia, what he's going to do, he's going to go on to cite several different Christian scholars. Again, with my disclaimer, I'm not going to quote all of them, but I'm going to quote, I'm going to reference some of them so that you get an idea of the quotes that he is pulling. He goes on to say, Let's read the comments of a number of preeminent Trinitarian Bible scholars on this subject. Charles Caldery Ryrie, a highly regarded dispensationalist, professor of biblical studies at the Philadelphia College of Bible and author of the widely read Bible commentary, the Ryrie Study Bible, writes in his short and to-the-point annotation of Genesis 1.26, us, our, plurals of majesty. He goes on to cite another one. The Liberty Annotated Study Bible, a Bible commentary published by the fundamentalist Reverend Jerry Falwell's Liberty University, similarly remarks on this verse, the plural pronoun us is most likely a majestic plural from the standpoint of Hebrew grammar in syntax. The question that immediately comes to mind is, what would compel these conservative scholars, all of whom are devout Trinitarians, to categorically reject the notion that Genesis 1.26 supports the doctrine of Trinity? Why do they conclude that God is speaking this famed verse in his majestic address to the angelic host of heaven? Why are the commentaries of the above conservative Christian writers completely consistent with the age-old teaching on this verse. The answer emerges from the Torah and its prophets. If you search the Hebrew Bible, you will find that when the Almighty speaks of us or our, he is addressing his ministering angels. In fact, only two chapters later, God continues to use the pronoun us as he speaks with his angels. At the end of the third chapter of Genesis, the Almighty relates to his angels that Adam and his wife have eaten from the tree of knowledge and must therefore be prevented from eating from the tree of life as well. For if man would gain access to the tree of life, he will become like one of us. All right, that was a long way to go. I want to address a couple of things in regard to this article. Number one, you need to understand that you need to get the perspective of what we're dealing with. And I think this article hit it out of the park so that you understand where Orthodox rabbis are coming from. Uh, number two, I want to address Tovia's statement here. He, the last statement he's making here is, is in reference to Genesis 3.22. I'll put this up here. According to Rabbi Singer, this statement is referring to angelic beings. I want to have an open mind here, okay? Could this refer to angels? 
in this passage. Man has become like one of us. Man had sinned, and now what, did, what happened? What was the result? Now man knew good and evil. They now have that knowledge. Is it possible, I mean, could we even fathom that God is perhaps speaking to his angels? Absolutely. Because I'm of the conclu- I've come to the conclusion that the angels of God in heaven, they know good and evil. So could I say that this text here is referring to ministering angels? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm personally okay with that interpretation, but understand, this interpretation of this text in Genesis 3.22, which Rabbi Singer just quoted, I don't need this text to prove the deity of Yeshua. This text alone isn't going to prove that Yeshua is deity. However, having said that, do I believe this passage does refer to the father and his son having a conversation? Absolutely. And why do I say that? Because number one, it's consistent with what's going on already in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis 1.26. That would be consistent with Genesis 1.26. But I don't stand or fall on this passage. I don't need this passage to prove the Godhead. Thirdly, I want to comment on a particular statement that he made regarding Genesis 1.26, because this was at the heart of the matter. This was the subject matter. When the, when the gal wrote in and asked the question, it was about Genesis 1.26. That Messianic Jew was showing this individual, this Jewish person, that this is proof of Yeshua's deity, that he was there. He was an instrument of creation. So let's go back to Tovia's statement. He said, A great number of Trinitarian theologians have long rejected the notion that Genesis 1.26 implies a plurality of persons in the Godhead. Can I stop there for a second? I, I think that's a little bit of a stretch for him to make that statement. That's, a, that's an erroneous statement uh, with all due respect to Rabbi Singer. Rather, Christian scholars overwhelmingly agree that the plural pronoun in this verse is a reference to God's ministering angels who were created previously and the Almighty spoke majestically in the plural consulting his heavenly court. If you search the Hebrew Bible, you will find that when the Almighty speaks of us and our, those plurals of majesty, he is addressing the ministering angels. All right, let's do something. Let's put this to the test. Let's examine the very context of Genesis 1.26. Genesis 1.26 says, Then Elohim said, Let us make man in our image and our likeness. Okay. So if you actually believe Tovia's interpretation of what he just said, you're immediately confronted with a serious problem, contextually speaking. Because remember, when one seeks to interpret a passage in the Bible, we have to take in consideration the very context of the verse. In other words, we have to read it as Tovia reads it. Let's apply his understanding to the text so that we can see uh, what he is stating. If I read this text as Tovia does, it says, Then Elohim said, Let us. In other words, God is speaking. Let us, O heavenly court, ministering angels, do what? Make man in our image. Problem. Nowhere in Scripture or any Jewish writings that I've ever read will you find the angels of God, the heavenly court, are instruments of creation. It doesn't exist. Not one verse in the Bible will prove this. This is, this is a very erroneous statement. He's actually stating the angels of God in heaven. To, to come to his logical conclusion here, 
God consulted his heavenly court, and they took part in creation of man. So God would create through his angels. That's blasphemy. He did no such thing. In fact, as you continue into the next verse, things are further confirmed on behalf of the deity of Yeshua. Listen to this. So Elohim created man in his own image. Notice it doesn't say, so Elohim and his court, the angels. It says Elohim created man in his own image. You cannot get around this, Genesis 1.26, with clever arguments. With uh, Hebrew and uh, grammatical syntax, it isn't going to happen. The only person in view in this passage is Elohim. It's God. So when we see that the majestic plural noun used in Genesis 1.1, Elohim, and then we come to Genesis 1.26 and 1.27, what do we discover? A fascinating revelation regarding the one God of creation, regarding who he is. There's something going on here. Just think about how beautiful this is for a minute. That a plural noun, I mean, think, just stop and think about this. In the Hebrew, it's common to take a plural noun of majesty, as it were, and describe one being. Do you think that's a coincidence? I don't find that a coincidence. That further supports what we believe. We believe the Father and Son are one. I don't believe in three gods. I believe in one God. But there is a revelation of this God of heaven and earth that very few people possess. And that is that Yeshua is the Son of God. And he is one with his Father, and he demands, he deserves worship. Now, I want to read to you Tovia's closing statement, just to keep things into context. He says, I will close this letter with one final note. Outsiders often wonder what a powerful force, what powerful force binds the Jewish people united in faith. This is not so odd a question when you consider the internal conflicts that have followed our people throughout our troubled history. Bear in mind, regardless of the turbulent quarrels that fester among us, the oneness of God remains the binding thread which unites the Jewish people in history and witness. Let me tell you, that's what binds the church. That understanding of the oneness of God. I attest to this testimony. I agree with it solely. Where we differ is the revelation of who this God is. He goes on, The teachings of the Torah were designed to set forever in the national conscience of the Jewish people the idea that God is one alone. Accordingly, he is the only Savior worthy of our devotion and worship. This is what's at stake. It is worship. You know, I, I want to add something here. And, and going through this article, how careful you need to be when you are going out to witness to a non-believing Jew or to an Orthodox Jew. How careful you need to be to not present three gods. Because we, three gods, we, I don't believe that. The Bible doesn't teach there are three gods that we're to worship. There is only one God, Echad. There is one God. So when we go out and witness to these people, whether they're Christian Unitarians or Orthodox Jews, we need to get that right in the argument. They need to understand we don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God. Now, do we have further evidence to support the interpretation that I've given regarding Genesis 1.26 and looking at Genesis 1.1? Is there, is there any further explanation of this? Is there any further commentary? Uh, to, to explain these majestic 
plural nouns. This is us and our, Elohim. Well, wouldn't you know it, we do have inspired commentary, as it were, by a monotheistic Jew from the first century whose name is Yochanan, or John. In fact, his commentary that he gives us far surpasses anything we've ever talked about today by a mile. And his commentary begins in John 1.1. And listen to these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now this is the beginning of the prologue of John. John's prologue, really, it goes beyond verse 1. It's verses 1 through 18. That's the prologue of John, all right? And it is hands down the best commentary on creation or Genesis 1 you will ever read. It's inspired commentary. Please notice that John intentionally, deliberately here, begins his gospel with the exact same words that begin the Hebrew Bible. In the beginning. In the Greek, NRK. Do you know that when you go to the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the very first words recorded are NRK. The exact words that you will find in the Gospel of John. This is significant to pick up on because John is drawing his readers purposely bringing them back to Genesis 1.1. Why? Because he's about to give a commentary on Genesis chapter 1. He's about to reveal a deeper mystery of creation here. One that confirms the deity of Yeshua. One that shows that Yeshua truly is a chad with his father. And that Yeshua was there at the beginning. And he was involved with creation. So looking at this first verse in John, I want you to notice something. There are three individual specific statements that are being made here. Number one, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. John's identifying the when. The when here. It's, it's very important that you look at this word here in the Greek. I've circled it. It's ain. This is a verb. This signifies, in the beginning was the Word. This signifies that the Word, take it back as far as you can. All the way back. It's timeless. Take this back as far as you can. This is significant to see because John was careful and how he worded his prologue. In the beginning was the Word. Then we follow it by this statement. And the Word was with God. I'm fascinating at the end here. With God, literally, the word was proston theon in the Greek. Face to face with God. This is, this is amazing. So in the beginning was the word, the when, and the word was with God. Proston theon was face to face. That's the where. And then we come to the who. And the word was God. Actually, if you read this in Greek, it, it reads, and God was the Word. Amazing. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, prostantheon, face to face, and the Word was God. This is a heavy statement to make. Coming from a monotheistic Jew, what a commentary, right? Describing this Word, the Word of God. Now what he does is he goes on to make 
three more specific statements. He says, he was in the beginning with God. Interesting. First, we have the word. In the Greek, it's logos. Okay? In Hebrew, it would be devar. But in the Greek, it's logos. So here, he was talking about this word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Logos, logos, logos. But now in verse 2, what does he do? He uses a personal pronoun. As though you would, lest you think that this uh, word was an inanimate object proceeding from God. He says, he was in the beginning with God. Personal pronoun. He was in the beginning with God. It's interesting that this statement is a compilation of the first two statements that were made. Because he doesn't want you to miss it. Goes on in verse 3. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Again, another very, very significant statement. One that um, I'm going to get further into next week. We're not going to break into this. But all this to say is that the creator of heaven and earth is this word. It was made through this word. All things were made through this word. Who now we know in verse 2 is a person. Because it's used uh, utilizing a personal pronoun. He was in the beginning with God. And we know this he was God. Then we come to verse 4 regarding the word. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Understand what makes God, God. He gives life to all things. Nothing lives without God. Everything's dead. There is no existence for anybody. The children that are, that are coming into the womb, when they come out, when they're breathing, it's the breath of God that comes into them that gives them life. Interesting that first we have this description, this amazing revelation of this Word. He's identified as the Word. We discover that He's with God. He is God. All things are made through him. We know God has made the heavens and the earth. But now in verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Fascinating when you consider the following verse, Psalm 119.50. And the light, or, and this is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. John is calling the word in his passage in verse 4, life. So to a Jew in the first century, what is he doing? He's connecting the dots for his brethren. And what does Yeshua say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. What a statement. You wonder why they wanted to stone Yeshua? John 1.5. John goes on in his prologue. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is referring to Yochanan the Immerser. The man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. The word light in the Greek is phos, or in Hebrew, or. John does something here in this prologue I do not want you to miss. He likens the word first to life, and now he likens the Logos, the Word, to light. 
you know, John's using different descriptors here, totally different words to describe the same person, this word. Fascinating again when you consider Psalm 119, when he actually calls this word the light. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word, logos in the Greek, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This is fascinating. Yeshua is throughout the Word of God. He is the Word of God. He is the Word made flesh. So amazing. The Word in this passage is likened to light. John comes to the exact same conclusion as the psalmist does. It's fascinating. Psalms 104, verse 1. Bless Yahweh. Bless the Lord, all my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty who cover yourself with light as with a garment who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. God of creation, Yahweh. God of creation and yet he does what? Covers himself with light. Amazing. The very descriptor that John uses to describe Yeshua, the Son of God. His words here, his revelation as it were, John the Revelator, right? His revelation on Yeshua is amazing. It's riddled with the deep mysteries of God. He's bringing stuff to light that people had missed, that had not seen. He's revealing to his audience who Yeshua really is. 1 John 1.5, same author. This is the message which you have heard from him and declared to you, that God is light. Theos, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. What you will find, if you read John's writing, you will find he's using these transposable terms, if you will. Amazing. We're going to end here today. Next week, we're going to be continuing in John's prologue. We're going to further continue to, do, uh, to identify some amazing things regarding the Word of God. We've got a long way to go, and I'm sorry if it seems a little slow. There's so much information. I cannot cut corners on this topic. I can't do it. So with that said, Shabbat Shalom.